So you've just recently returned to the Netherlands from like a an eight week trip in Korea. Yes, about ten, nine weeks. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Do you feel like mostly settled back now? Uh, more or less. Eh? If you look at LFTs, then uh, leaving um, and arriving eh, is a big theme. Eh? Uh, and it's something that's uh, in our body, eh? like settled in our body. Um, so it always uh, takes some time eh, to fully arrive. And maybe, um, yeah, you might not arrive fully at all. So but we, we can discuss that uh, later. <laughs> <laughs> but every, every day, I think, uh, I feel that I'm more here. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan. What are you afraid to feel? Fear, sadness, anger? Whatever it is, adoptee coach Susan Stam wants you to stay with it and then stay with it a little longer. Adopted from Korea at the age of four years and seven months to the Netherlands, Susan works as a coach specializing in relinquishment and adoption related issues with AFC Netherlands, an organization run by adoptees and people raised in foster care, founded by Hilbrand Vestra, who was our episode 17 guest. But the path to becoming a coach wasn't easy. Susan struggled with her own issues, including, in her words, a hypersensitivity to rejection so strong that she could smell it, a relationship addiction and insomnia, issues that only started to heal after she became conscious of her relinquishment and adoption trauma. In this conversation, Susan talks about her own journey and then shares some strategies for when we feel triggered, for getting out of our heads and into our bodies, for learning to connect to our feelings rather than numbing or pushing them away, and for setting boundaries when you're a self-confessed people pleaser. And then Susan rather unexpectedly turns the questions back on us and we both get real about some shit. Get ready for vulnerability, feels, and some super practical tips that we hope you'll find useful. And thanks again to Susan for sharing her wisdom in English, no less, which is her third language, at least. And finally, an apology in advance. We've tried our best to clean it up, but the audio is a little bit patchy at times during this episode. Can I ask um, what you're in Seoul for? Yes, well, my main goal, and there were many goals, was to study Korean. Mm -hmm. So I uh, started in uh, 2000, and that was also the first time that I uh, went back to Korea. And uh, well, off and on, I studied Korean. So, and basically, this was uh, this year, uh, it was the first time that I was more conscious about the uh, impact of uh, abandonment, uh, relinquishment and adoption um, and that I uh, came back to Korea. So one was uh, to learn the language, uh, two was to yeah, meet my family, so my Korean family. I've got half-sisters and half-brothers in Korea that I know. <clears throat> For me, it was the first time to be back in Korea that my father died. He died in uh, 2014. 
and um, so I visited this grave eh, for the first time. And yeah, also to just be in Korea and to feel uh, to feel Korea um, and to come back in a more conscious way. Um, so, and I wanted to go to Busan as well, where I grew up, first four and a half years of my life. And uh, I'm also busy with the search uh, yeah, of my mother as well. Yeah. Adoption related things, I think. <laughs> it sounds like yeah. quite a productive trip then. Yes, it was in, in many ways. Um, and, and it was also the first time that I uh, returned from Korea back to the Netherlands uh, where, where I was adopted, um, that I felt more fulfilled. And maybe you can, you can relate to this, like this empty feeling. Eh? It's like inside your body. And I'm, I'm pointing at my chest, eh? my heart area, uh, which always felt empty. Um, and last week in the morning, I woke up and I thought, Hey, I'm not missing Korea that much. And I thought, huh? That's strange. Yeah. Because I always have eh, for the past three years. Every time that I thought about Korea, I, I felt this longing that, like Korea, like it, it, I could feel it physically that Korea was pulling me, and that I really wanted to be in Korea. And this was the first time that I, yeah, I didn't miss it that much. And I thought, hey, this is strange. And then, well, if I felt my body, yeah, so my heart, uh, heart area, my chest, it felt more. Uh, full, like saturated. Uh, what we also know that uh, it's about integration, eh? integration of, of the things that you lost as an adoptee. The challenge is to integrate all these lost parts back into yourself. And it's um, a very emotional process. Eh? Uh, but you can also feel it in, in, in the body. And that's, this is what I first, yeah, for the first time experienced in my life that it feels a little bit, yeah, more full. And it's, it's a very new feeling as well. Um, I was, I was very surprised and also very happy <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So for the first time, it also feels good to be back in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, again. Susan, can we start with this um, big question about how and why you became an adoptee coach? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I never uh, imagined that I um, would ever be an uh, adoptee coach, but it's something that I just developed uh, into. If, if I look at my own journey, yeah, um, there were many ups and downs. And, um, like for many years, yeah, I struggled with things, uh, and I will um, explain them later. Uh, but I had no idea that, that they had anything to do, uh, with adoption. So, and I thought that it was just, yeah, my life was just like that. And so I struggled with, uh, partner relationships. I struggled with work. Uh, I struggled with myself. Uh, I struggled with eating. Um, I didn't feel that much, and for many years, eh, I, I just thought I was like that, like that, eh? like like 
a little bit cold. And I had no reflection at all. Eh? So I could not look at myself and think, oh, why am I doing things like this? Or why is this happening? And finally, um, I, I had many relationships in my life. And uh, what I did was to go from one to the other and just go on and on like that. And after, well, uh, another relationship or while I was in this relationship, I heard about an, I heard an interview on, on TV about a woman. She said, yeah, I'm always so struggling with relationships and I didn't know why. And then I uh, read this book uh, and it really helped me. And it was a book about um, relationship addiction. Before that, I never heard about it. Eh? What the book is about is that you lose yourself into the relationship to such an extent that, that you don't know who you are anymore. And so totally disconnected from yourself, from your own feelings, your own needs and wants. Um, and you make the other person um, the most important one in your life. So you ad adjust uh, to his needs, to whatever he, he, he wants. And I, I did the same. Eh? So every time that the relationship ended, I felt totally empty because I I gave everything that I had, so there was nothing left. For many years, I thought, because um, this has to do with attachment, huh? uh, to be able to attach or not to attach. But what I did is to attach myself as closely as possible to a partner and hold on. And I was so afraid of um, yeah, the fact that he would uh, abandon me, yeah, that I would do anything. Uh, to keep him with me and I thought that this was the core of my problem that I could not attach in a healthy way yeah? so I, I got therapy um, so relationship uh, addiction therapy and uh, what it learned uh, me was to connect to myself yeah? to, to, to discover that, that I had feelings and to uh, able to be to reflect on these feelings like oh yeah, if I don't feel like like very well, or I have this uh, like like tension in my stomach, and that that I could recognize, oh, but, but it means that something is wrong. But we we yeah basically didn't talk about adoption that much, and also not the time before my adoption. Eh? So uh, and also the word trauma and, and childhood trauma, early trauma. There, there are different words for it. Uh, was never mentioned. So for many years, I thought relationships and uh, not able to attach in a healthy way was the core of my problem. But it wasn't that. So it was a um, very uh, like difficult search for me to uh, finally get to the, the knowledge and, 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 and to know that, well, the relationships, yeah, that those are not the problem, uh, problems, like the core of the problem. It has to do something with my adoption and uh, the abandonment eh, before adoption. So I just, uh, well, I went into just therapy and it helped me eh, to develop more healthy relationships, a little bit more healthy. But also eh, I, I struggled on eh, because it, it just helped for, for a little part eh, to, to, to become uh, more healthy. Um, and uh, finally, uh, well, many other things happened, eh? like um, 
my adoptive mother, she died. Uh, before that, many relationships ended. Uh, and what I said, I also tr- struggled with work. So it was very easy for me to get a new job. But to hold on to it, it was very difficult because the same things happened uh, in work as well. So adjusting, making the other person more important, uh, not really feeling uh, what I wanted. So I always well, adjusted to and pleased others. Huh? So uh, what happened in my work was that I got fired. I had to do improvement programs. Temporary uh, contracts were not prolonged. Uh, so the theme here is a loss. Eh? It has to do with loss. Finally, I developed insomnia. So I couldn't sleep anymore. And also in, in the time that um, when my adoptive mother died, uh, I think two years later, my father, so my Korean father also died. Like all these uh, situations of loss, well, finally, it, it, yeah, it brought me to my knees. Eh? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I uh, was looking for help eh, to, to, well, to sleep again, because if you don't sleep, it means you cannot function. And I did many like trauma therapies eh, where the, also the body was involved. But it didn't really help. Sometimes things help for a, for a short period of time, but then well, the same event I came back, like uh, the risk of loss of, of a job, uh, and then everything thing would just fall apart again, and then I wouldn't sleep anymore. And not sleeping is me- meaning it, it took like months to years that I would wake up every night, like every hour. Mm. For many years, uh, I struggled on uh, with uh, well, fixing the problem of uh, my not sli- me not sleeping. And um, only when I met Hilbron, who's uh, like the founder uh, of uh, AFC Netherlands, I started to find out that, yeah, that everything that I experienced in my life, all these struggles, but it had to do with adoption and abandonment. And only then it, well, changed for the better. And what I discovered that is that what I experienced in my life, eh, these were all symptoms of uh, early, early trauma, eh, childhood trauma. And childhood trauma eh, that I experienced as a child uh, when I was abandoned eh, by my parents. Uh, that I had to leave my country, my culture, everything that was well known to me and felt safe. Uh, I had to leave eh, because I was adopted, and also that it was physically moved. Eh, but uh, forced, it was a forced move. I mean, I, I've never asked for it eh, to to leave Korea. Uh, that that had such an impact on me and was so traumatic. That I yeah, well developed all these symptoms like um, defense mechanisms as well to cope with this yeah with all these losses and only when I could link those events yeah, together yeah I could improve yeah, improve my life. When you first started talking about relationship addiction, I was um, thinking like romantic relationships. And when you talk about work, I think 
you're implying that no, it's relationships just more generally. And I was kind of wondering if, um, if you had had any relationships with other adoptees, say when you were younger, as you were perhaps experiencing these symptoms, right, of, of trauma, do you think that that impacted your relationship with other adoptees? Uh, yes, yes, yes. It impacted uh, all my relationships. Eh? So also that one with uh, with an adoptee. So I did have a relationship with another Korean adoptee. It was also adopted to um, to the Netherlands, and it started mm-hmm. as a friendship. Eh? So we were studying together, and we were friends, and then what well, developed into a relationship, and. Um, I mean, what our dynamic was in this relationship that, I mean, I was very good at adjusting eh, in relationship, but he was even better. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, it's all about that, the degree to, uh, in in which you can adapt. Hmm? Adjusting or in other words, like people pleasing or accommodating the other person. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I was good at it. He, he was even better. <laughs> uh, so if you look at our dynamic, it was that he put me on this pedestal. I think you call it pedestal. And, um, and maybe you can re- also relate to the, um, the feeling eh, that you just want to be like normal. And normal means um, not different eh, from the people uh, well, in the country yeah, that you were adopted to. So I, I wanted to be Dutch and like blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, well, he felt the same. Eh? I mean, we both look, look Korean. We are Korean. Uh, but he also wanted to be like, yeah, like Dutch. And actually, um, we never talked about uh, the fact that we were adopted. I mean, obviously we were. But it was not a, not a, yeah, like a, like a topic that we, we would talk about because we were both not conscious at all about what it meant to me, to mm. us. Eh? So I, I didn't know what uh, Korea meant to me and to be Korean. Uh, he neither did. And uh, finally, I, I think we had a relationship for about one year. And um, at the end, I was going to study abroad in England. Um, and I thought, well, I don't want to have a re- like a distance relationship, like a far distance relationship. So finally, I, I ended this relationship. And also what I uh, felt is that um, I was not attracted, yeah, like physically or romantically attracted to other adoptees. And so I didn't find Korean men very attractive. Do you mean to other Asian men or... Yeah. In general, yes, yeah, yeah. Asian men, uh, Korean men, any men with a little bit of color, I, I wouldn't, I didn't feel physically attracted to. So uh, now I, I understand that um, I was so disconnected from my Korean part or my Korean being that. Um, yeah, it, it was separated, yeah? so not integrated. So I, so it also meant that I, well, physically did, was not attracted to to Korean men or to Asian men. 
so it, it, it's more um, how do you call it um, push me away then it would attract me so because he was a friend well it developed in a, into a relationship but I think that if we wouldn't have been friends then well, we, we would never had a relationship did the way that you uh, perceived Asian men change later? And I, I guess and the, probably the way you perceived yourself at, at some point that began to change. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, uh, this year in Korea, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I could uh, better see that men were attractive. I mean, I didn't do anything with it eh, because I'm in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I could you see it eh, like like all well, these attractive features, and before it it would just well, I wouldn't feel anything. Mm. Eh? So uh, it that did change. Yeah, true, and. Uh, to come back to the question of uh, Ryan, eh? so how does it affect relationships, uh, my, my relationships? That um, if you look at um, the risk of abandonment, that always uh, impacted my relationship. Because I was always so afraid and I was hypersensitive to any signals that were there. So I can say that I could could smell, I could smell it, I could smell distance, mm. and so it could be in a, in a gaze uh, or a sound or a sight, and so what happened, for example, the current boyfriend there on the phone, and uh, I, I asked him, like, oh, shall we meet this weekend, shall we do this or that, I go somewhere, and then he would uh, be silent for like a millisecond. So what happens eh, in my in my brain is uh, oh oh he doesn't want to. Okay, then oh I don't want to either. Oh this is the end of the relationship. Eh? I have to break up. Mm. And and that happens so fast uh, nowadays. Eh? I can um, I can share this with him. Eh? Uh, but before I would have ended the relationship eh, already. But now I can share it, and then I can discover that he was just thinking about his agenda. Like thinking of his agenda, oh, do I have any plans this weekend? Oh, no, I don't have it, so then we can meet. But that is the hypersensitivity yeah, that um, that you get when, when you have a trauma, uh, that if something happens in the now, and it looks like something that happens happened before, yeah, when the trauma happens, well, you get this physical reaction, and that happens so fast that co cognitively, yeah, so there's the front part of your brain, it's, it's a very slow part, yeah? it's, it's, it's developed later in life, it doesn't react that fast. So very, something very primitive comes up, and then uh, that, that's the part that reacts, a response, it's a trauma response. Yeah? And when that happens, it's very difficult to, well, to be aware of what is happening and then respond in a different way. And this is, this is the thing that I 
Uh, if I uh, coach adoptees, this is the thing that I coach adoptees uh, about. On that topic, what kind of advice do you give adoptees that you're working with for for when they feel triggered like that, when they feel this um, sudden fear of rejection or fear of abandonment or even, well, I mean, I can talk for myself. Like so, sometimes mm-hmm. I suddenly become like, like almost like af- afraid of some kind of betrayal, like this feeling like, oh, like it, people are not on my side anymore. Yes. Like, and I, th- which I also think is a trauma response. Yeah. How do you advise people? Well, I'm, as a coach, I'm trying not to advise. Oh, right, right. right. <laughs> um, you, you, you're, you're using the word trigger, eh? and that's what it is. Eh? So you're triggered, so something is touched eh, within you, which was already there. What I um, talk about with uh, adoptees that I coach is that well, one part is like understanding eh, what is a trigger. When you're triggered, it means that something happens in the now, which looks like something that happened, happened in the past that was very traumatic. And usually, uh, it means that your response is, is bigger than the situation. Um, because later on, eh, when you're, when everything is more calm again, eh, you're, you're, you're like your system and your, your emotions. Uh, you can reflect on it, like, oh, maybe it was a bit, a bit overdone, eh? my, my reaction. So that's how you can recognize it. And what I uh, talk about eh, with, with adoptees is that they uh, learn to recognize this situation when something like that is happening. And so become more conscious about what kind of situations are there in your life. It can be... Uh, the way something looks, uh, is, is looking at you, or um, yeah, like when some somebody saying no yeah, to a proposal that you do, or uh, when you are in groups, or when you are with your adoption family, uh, adoptive family, uh, or no, any any situation that you're in, when something like that is happening. So that is the the defense mechanism eh? and the defense mechanism you're doing that because you don't want to feel something that's the the feeling that you had when the trauma occurred something is traumatic and, and that's for every person that's very personal because if something happens to you the same th- and the same thing happens to me it doesn't have to mean that it's traumatic for me too Trauma is a, a trauma experience is very personal, and uh, when you look at adoptees, uh, we were very young eh, at that age when we were adopted, and also when we were abandoned. Eh? And that's that's a different different kind of trauma. Eh? So that's what we call early childhood trauma, because it's it's something that uh, is happening for days or weeks or months or even years. So it's not a one-time trauma, like an accident or when you're beaten up or when you become sick as an adult. So it's a different kind of trauma. So 
when something is very, when, when this trauma uh, uh, event happens, it means you're feeling things. And usually it's things about fear or sadness or anger. I usually not happiness, yeah, because that's, well, no, almost nobody gets trauma because it's too happy. But all these, these feelings, yeah, these very strong feelings, they are overwhelming, too overwhelming for your systems or your body. So what then happens is to survive. So that's why we call yeah, things like survival mechanisms. So your body has a way to protect you. And that's the trauma response. So it means, for example, that you dissociate. And it means that you don't feel uh, the things that are overwhelming at that moment. Because if you would feel all these feelings uh, that are so overwhelming, basically it, it means you would die. Your system, uh, it protects you for you for your not to die. And then all these uh, defense mechanisms they start working. And so what I also do is try adoptees to reconnect again to these feelings that were too overwhelming when they were a child or even a baby. And because as a baby or a child, you cannot bear these feelings. But as an adult, you can. Mm -hmm. yeah, but what happens is when you're triggered, you become this child or this baby again. Your body yeah, doesn't know that it's in the now and not in the past again uh, anymore. What you do is you, you like separate uh, these overwhelming feelings from your body. Yeah? Um, and you do that um, by using these survival mechanisms. So in that moment of being triggered and feeling overwhelmed, um, I'm guessing that some practical strategies would be like mindfulness techniques and some kind of, um, I don't know, like deep breathing or kind of self-soothing practices. Yeah. There are many ways eh, to do, do this and there's not one uh, thing that works. Eh? So uh, that's a difficult thing eh, that, um, it's it's a personal path hmm. to find out and to experience what helps you. And for one person, it's mindfulness, uh, breathing exercises, yoga, uh, uh, walking. Uh, for another person, it could be uh, constellations, uh, doing therapy, uh, where also the uh, body is involved. For some people, also just talking therapy helps. Um, for other people, it's uh, it can be creative. Eh? Like hey, you you sing, eh? so singing, painting, uh, making sculptures. So dancing eh? is also a good way. So there are many different ways. But right in that moment, I would say um, a lot of us probably have less healthy like self-soothing um things that that we go to right like i mean mm -hmm. yeah i wonder like sometimes right in that moment um whether there are things that we can do that aren't um i don't know just 
numbing out with like Mm -hmm. food or alcohol or like TV or whatever it is, you know, like something else. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I understand. I think I understand what you mean that uh, in that moment eh, when uh, something like that happens, so you feel triggered. It's good to stay, stay, um, how do you say it? Stay, stay connected to what, what is happening. Like if you feel afraid, uh, don't push it away eh, with alcohol or uh, anything else. Try to like, connect to that feeling of fear. And you can do that eh, via mindfulness or a breathing ex- exercise of just scanning eh, the body and to feel that emotion. And if you have to cry, eh, cry. And if it takes half an hour, it's okay. And to soothe console also yourself like oh this is okay it's there uh, it, i'm allowed to feel it it doesn't have to well i don't have to get rid of it uh it's okay eh? the way i feel but um also in um just do it step by step uh, you don't have to sink into this feeling eh? because somewhere in your brain it thinks oh if i do this I will stay there forever. Mm. Yes, like it, it will consume me or it will just be too much. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's too frightening. So that's the reason eh, why you uh, usually push it away. Okay. Feel it, allow it, connect with it, uh, but not sink into it. Mm. And do you think, I mean, sorry to um, keep on this, but. Um, oh, it's okay. <laughs> So do you think that process, and you know, so I think that process is key, isn't it? It's like so many of us, whether we were adopted or not, I think we're raised in a culture of kind of, you know, pushing bad feelings away, yes. pushing those things like fear and anger and sadness away. Yes. And so then as adults, it's like we're trying to basically teach ourselves to stop avoiding those feelings and like, learn to feel them but it's it's a Mm -hmm. skill right it's like and a lot of us have like hardly any practice in that at all you know so true do you think that that's kind of a skill that um that's where it helps to work with a coach or some kind of therapist to kind of practice that gradually yeah yeah I mean, I, I recommend that to do this with somebody and not uh, on your own. And if you know how to do it, you can also do it on your own. Because a, a therapist or a coach can help you uh, also to, to um, make it like a safe environment and to guide you eh, when, yeah, when this is happening. Uh, when you feel overwhelmed, eh? uh, so it's like when when the coach is um, eh, f- feeling safe himself eh? or herself, eh? that that it starts from there. Uh, because as a coach, eh, when I don't feel when I uh, don't feel safe, I cannot provide safety for uh, my coaches. And so it starts with me. What you uh, in the end develop is trust. Like trust in yourself, because if you go into this process of not numbing and not pushing it, those feelings away, 
um, you can discover and feel that, that after you, you, you did that, connecting to these very uncomfortable and frightening feelings, that you're still there. You still exist. Because on a deep layer, you think, uh, if I do this, I won't survive. And, and the more you do this, you can strengthen uh, this trust in yourself. Ryan, just checking, like, you relate to the, do you relate to this? <laughs> this whole, you know, just like pushing those feelings away and, and having to, to learn the skill of connecting with them as an adult. Yeah. I mean, it, it all feels very relatable. I even, um, I thought it was quite funny when you said that people don't usually get trauma from being happy. And it just reminded me of this conversation I recently had with my therapist where we were discussing how I flee from happiness in a way because I'm scared that I don't deserve happiness mm -hmm. or that it's going to end. And so I actually think I struggle to just even sit with like, quote unquote, positive feelings, which I think is like the other side of what we're talking about too. So I was like, very, very relatable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the positive feelings in a way, maybe the difficulty of those is that there's that fear of loss, um, like right there on the other side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that it won't last or, um, but yeah, I think my therapist was also trying to get me to, to consider that it's also has something to do with my feelings of worthiness yeah. of happiness. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I have sometimes felt in my life that I am not really present in a lot of my experiences. And I think I've learned to be more present, but certainly in the past. And, and that would, f that would hold not just for, you know, anger and sadness, but even also for, for happiness. And so I guess coming to that realization was mm -hmm. a little bit, um, I guess trying to unpack that with, with her. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Huh? So can that uh, have to do with uh, worthiness also uh, with self love, uh, the feeling, uh, am I good enough? Am I worthy? Uh, and uh, if you look at adoptees, uh, uh, because we were separated uh, from our mothers to just be uh, uh, and not doing anything, just be there, it's very uncommon that, that, that you have a value because you're just, because you're there instead of, oh, you have a value because you're doing something. Mm -hmm. Right, because it would be that our value is simply that we exist. Yes. But for adoptees, yeah. that's complicated. Right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so mm -hmm. uh, what you see uh, with many adoptees is that they are doing to exist, uh, to be able to exist, mm -hmm. uh, or giving. Uh, when you give something, then uh, you are um, well, you are allowed to exist, and that's also. Um, uh, like a um, survival mechanism. Eh? Can I'm wondering if we can just um, maybe take one step back, just for maybe some listeners, but just wondering how all of the stuff that you've been talking about, like if if you could really briefly speak to the way that that manifests in terms of symptoms, like what sorts of behaviors or what sorts of patterns would this 
you know, would these early traumatic experiences show up like, you know, so that people learn to recognize them, you know? Um, Well, there are so many um, defense mechanisms, yeah? So I will start uh, with the the ones that were very active uh, in my life. So one is um, adjusting, so adapting. So adapting to other people, to any other situation. So thinking uh, for other people, like, oh, so before somebody feels that he needs something, that I already know that what he needs. So not doing what I want but doing what the other person wants. So in, in that process, I would lose myself. Um, being very uh, uh, perfectionistic. And so everything had to be like 100, well, 10, 20%. Uh, it was never, never good enough. Being very critical uh, to other people, but also to myself. Uh, uh, addiction. Any addiction, eh? so it can be uh, substance addiction, it can be eating, uh, this um, uh, eating or just not eating, eh? eating too much or eating not enough. Uh, it can be sex. So what we usually see is that sex addiction. Men mostly have sex addiction, and women develop uh, relationship addiction. Um, it can be uh, doing a lot of things. So if you're doing, well, if you're doing too much, it means usually the effect is said that you don't feel much being too much in your head. So thinking, analyzing, intellectualization, rationalization. It's also a survival mechanism. Dissociation, so not feeling much. Uh, Anger as well. Usually when people are very, very angry, well, if you can look through it, uh, mostly it's sadness, eh, what's uh, under under it. And all these sad defense mechanisms or survival mechanisms, uh, you use them um, well, not to feel. And uh, all these defense mechanisms, eh, they're very smart. Eh? So uh, it's a lifelong... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all your life, eh, you're, you're, you're developing them. And in such an extent that there looks almost like second skin. And eh? they feel very comfortable because they've mm. been there for all your life. Eh? Um, and mm. uh, what can happen is that you basically think that you are this defense mechanism. So I thought, oh, I didn't feel much. So I thought I was very cold. So if mm. something very emotional happens, I wouldn't feel much. And then I thought, hey, oh, I don't feel much. Oh, then everything is okay. And I would just step over it. And I would just continue eh, with my life. But also uh, like laughing, like humor. I la- li- uh, we call it like uh, laughing something away. It can be a defense mechanism. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, so, which one do you recognize? <laughs> okay, continue with it. I was like, this list is getting really long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Denying, denying, avoiding. 
yeah, if you deny it, it's not there. I deny, for example, mm. uh, what I said is, oh, I I uh, was not born in the in uh, in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, I look different, but I feel uh, uh, but um, I feel Dutch. I am Dutch. That's what I said. So it's uh, denying eh, the fact that I well, that, that I'm Korean. It's a very strong uh, defense mechanism. Very functional. Mm -hmm. So, um, which one do you recognize? <laughs> is there is there any 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 of the mechanisms that you recognize? You, you go first, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, like, yes. <laughs> um, you know, this is something that Hannah and I have talked a bit about on, on the podcast, but like perfectionism and rationalization and stuff like that. And I have thought, I have reflected on, you know, whether, you know, being drawn to particular career choices, for instance, is actually stemming a lot from, you know, becoming so good at, you know, rationalization or intellectualizing things. Yeah in order to flee the feeling um, and how these just become, you know, what we view as like our natural proclivities or our natural, you know, ways that we think about the world or want to be in the world. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely, I guess those, those ones feel maybe particularly prominent for me, I guess, at the moment, because I, um, because I do research on Korean adoption and I've been trained to kind of, yeah, I suppose like intellectualize a little bit mm -hmm. um, and, you know, develop, you know, better ways of thinking about things. Right. And I think that I have had a tendency to treat Korean adoption or my Korean adoption, let's say as a puzzle that I can just, think through as opposed to something that I also have to feel and I have to be able to access those feelings because the quote unquote answers that I'm looking for is really about, you know, what does being a Korean adoptee mean? And I realize, you know, more and more that that question cannot be something that I can just think, <laughs> you know, that's something that I have to I suppose, yeah, like connect to my embodied experience of that as well. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I d definitely relating to, to those to those aspects for sure. And I think when I was younger, um, I can definitely identify, particularly in relationships, mm -hmm. the kind of push-pull. And when I was a teen, I was told that I had borderline personality disorder Mm. Um, or, you know, symptoms of BPD, you know, that was all, you know, black and white thinking and feelings of chronic emptiness and things like that, um, which now I kind of, you know, would view much more as, yeah, the, the sorts of things that you're, you're talking about. Okay, yeah. You're telling yeah, about the um, uh, borderline. Um, you should really distinguish, yeah, like symptoms and what is the cause. And uh, what you see in the, like the medical field is that they really want to search for a, a diagnosis because that, that's how the, how the system works. Eh? If there isn't a, uh, well, something like that, then um, the insurance company won't cover your uh, treatments. Mm. So 
it means that um, it's a very narrow view, the, the things that you're dealing with eh, as an adoptee, but also if you look at in a broader perspective eh, to any uh, person eh, who is seeking for uh, psychological help. And that's also eh, what I experienced during my well, journey and search for the, the help um, is that but they can't see further than the symptoms. And that's why, mm-hmm. uh, if you look at AFC Netherlands, we look more at, at the cause. Because if, if you go into that, you can also uh, make the symptoms less active. What about you, um, Hannah? No, I also relate to a lot of it. Um, Particularly, I think, also just like being in my head a lot, you know, thinking and uh, overthinking and overanalyzing. And I was, you know, I was quite an anxious child growing up, you know, and looking back, I I really see that as a, developmental trauma response and I still struggle with anxiety it kind of comes and goes but like um and I think it's you know it kind of flares up when lots of things in my life are in flux so actually in a sense moving to Korea and things being uh, almost continually in flux for like three years has been yeah, I think it's um, triggered my anxiety even more in some ways, yeah. Um, and, again, it's like I don't know how much of my personality, say, is is naturally analytical and critical um, and how much of it is, like, kind of, yeah, uh, shaped by that early trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's even weird now. Like, I mean, I, I know that we're all on the same page about this and I know that a lot of our listeners are also on the same page about adoption being trauma, but I really feel that it's only in the last year or so that, that I would say so, so kind of bluntly about myself and my own experience. Like, yes, I am living with trauma. Like, yes, I am basically living with um, mm-hmm. like a form of, PTSD, yes, like on almost a daily basis. Like, sure, like I still uh, get things done. I still maintain relationships. But, yes, I am managing that um, trauma. Like, yeah, I'm I'm managing Mm -hmm. that. And it's kind of a lifelong job, I think, of managing it. But I don't know if that sounds... I feel like it's like partly liberating and partly a bit depressing to, to kind of, <laughs> you know, just to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. I mean, it's a big thing eh, to uh, admit to yourself eh, that something like that happens to you eh, because it makes, it can make you uh, feel vulnerable. And um, I think that the, the thing that we don't want to feel as adoptees is feeling vulnerable. And because if you, if you feel vulnerable, you can be hurt. And that's something that we experienced uh, already. So we will do anything eh, to not get hurt again. Yes? But to admit eh, that you have a trauma, that's something so 
awful happened to you and had such an impact and that was traumatic i mean that that's really um like a big thing eh? and one of the uh, big steps for opening up to uh, to heal it and so it, it it is it's like painful and, and tragic yes but it's also an opening to better deal with this and it is a lo- long life journey yeah, because I'm 48 now, that's my Korean age. I mean, when I'm 60 or 70, I'm still adopted. Uh, so we cannot never undo this. Yeah, but we can uh, make all these defense mechanisms less active and uh, develop uh, the safety within ourselves. And that is uh, the, mm-hmm. the, what's all about, eh? because all this, this trauma and uh, traumatic uh, events happen to us, it makes us feel unsafe. And because we, it happened as a child, this unsafety in, in, that's settled in our body, fixed in our body, uh, that's our default mode. And it's easily triggered. Before, eh, for this interview, eh, we, we talked uh, one time about uh, uh, boundaries. Eh, and uh, before you set boundaries, it means you have to feel these boundaries first. And your, your body will tell you when, uh, when there is a boundary. And it's yours. Eh? So for every person, the boundaries are, are somewhere else. But it's a signal eh, that when something, it's, it's almost like uh, that you bump into something with your body. Uh, we are so used of ignoring eh, this, this physical feeling or this, this emotional feeling, eh, like, like something in your stomach eh, or your chest is like tense or the tense in your body. We're so used to ignore it eh, that you lose this, this connection to your own boundaries. So how do how do you practice um, basically listening to your own body more? It's also about um, awareness and consciousness. Eh? Um, is that like feeling? This is really um, physical feeling. Is to be aware that you have a body. It's a defense mechanism eh? to be only in your head. So thinking a lot. Uh, overthinking, analyzing. So this part of our body, and I'm pointing at, at my head, this one, this part is very, very active, overactive, day and night. Eh? Mm. Um, <laughs> for example, eh, because it's already uh, at night at your place, if you think back, is, was there a moment today that you consciously felt your body Mm. Oh, were you just doing a lot of things and you were busy and talking to people and going places? Or was that was there really a moment that you could feel like your your body? Like, hey, it's there. Hey, I have yeah, my feet are there, my toes are there, on oh, my legs. Hey, how am I sitting eh, on this chair? Or consciously eating? 
Or did you just like Bali Bali, yeah? fast, fast, the Korean way? Were you aware that you have, have a body today? Or, for example, your breath? Did you breathe consciously today? Was there a moment that you felt like, like in and out, in and out? And so uh, that is uh, reconnecting it to your body. And you can do that with dancing or yoga, but always in a conscious way. Oh, it's there. Hey, I'm feeling it. Oh, this part feels different than that part. This part, then my feet feel cold or my uh, hands feel uh, moist or tensed. And so you can start with, with that. And um, if you look at emotions, and basically that's, that's the same way, yeah? that, oh, you feel something in your stomach, maybe, oh, I don't feel so well. Oh, hmm, what's that? And if you can sit with that for maybe a little bit longer than you're used to, it can just like come up as a very a clear moment, eh? like, uh, oh, oh, it might be sadness. Oh, I don't feel like doing this. And um, if you are very used to ignore eh, your body and your feelings eh, and your emotions, then uh, it's also very hard to feel um, the positive emotions, eh, like happiness and love. Mm. Just going back to the topic of boundaries, um, I feel like there are maybe two challenges in uh, with boundaries for adoptees. So the, Just two. the first, <laughs> the first being, um, you know, being connected to your body and your feelings to to recognize, oh, I, I'm I'm comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with this. Right to to kind of recognize your boundary in the first place. But then, you know, if we're used to accommodating and people-pleasing, you know, anticipating other people's needs, then I imagine, like, enforcing that boundary and not feeling, like, guilty or um, or whatever when if someone else, like, has a reaction to the boundary, I imagine that's you know, even more difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was your question about that? Well, I just, I mean, is <laughs> is, is it just practice then? It's, it's just like when, I mean, how, how do you go from being a, a very accommodating, people-pleasing person? Yeah. And actually, like, I, I, for myself, I think in some ways I am, but, it could be worse, so that's that's a relief. <laughs> um, you know, how do you go from being a, a very accommodating person to like, oh, I'm good with whatever, whatever you want. Oh, I, I don't mind. I don't have any preference to yeah. Yeah. to really being like, oh, I want this. Oh, I'm only comfortable with this. No, sorry, I'm I can't do that for you. Or not even sorry, I can't do that for you. I can only do this much. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, how then, sorry, just piggybacking on that, how then do you navigate the people around you who might be like, wow, Hannah, you've really changed? Yeah. yeah. Well, you never used to be like that. Mm, yeah. What's yeah. your problem? Kind of like, yeah. oh, are you, yeah. Or yeah. Are you, yeah. Yeah. 
why do, don't you accommodate me anymore? Huh? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so it's a process. Eh? So um, it's step by step, uh, small steps. Uh, so what I said eh, is first um, reconnecting eh, with your body and your own feelings. It, it can start in, uh, in different ways. Eh? Uh, it's like, like, a, like a clear moment like, oh, uh, how things are going now. I don't want that anymore. Uh, and uh, but you have no idea how to change it. Eh? But there's this clear moment, or it can be uh, a sensation, eh? like in your body, because every time you uh, cross your own boundaries, you will have a, f- a certain feeling afterwards. Usually, it's something like mm, maybe something in the stomach, eh? like a tense, fixed um, a sense. Let's say eh, that. Uh, well, you you're, you're, uh, you crossed your own boundaries so many times and then this, there's this clear moment like, oh, I don't want this anymore. I want this to change. Then it's to recognize eh, what kind of situation uh, are you crossing your own boundaries. As for, for example, it can be with your adoptive mother. So every time she does something, asks you something, Hey, you, you, you sense an appeal eh, on something. You're crossing your own boundaries. And to recognize what is going on. When, when does it happen? What is somebody saying? How do you respond? Eh? Because what happens then? Uh, you're thinking like, oh, I have to do this or uh, uh, I cannot uh, say no. Or uh, if I say no, then she, she will be angry. Uh, usually there are thoughts. And there's also uh, a feeling. So what are you feeling at that moment when something like that happens? And how do you deal with these feelings? And like, do you ignore them or uh, is it very difficult eh, to feel th- those feelings? And what would happen if you stick with your boundaries? Because th- there's usually a fear, a fear of something. And with adoptees, eh, um, well, a big theme is uh, loss and uh, abandonment. So if I say no to somebody, eh, will he or she continue the relationship with me? Eh, when I say no to my boss, will I get fired? Eh, will I lose my job? When I say no to my adoptive mother, and will she still see me as well part of the adoptive family? So th- that can be a theme. Eh? So uh, fear of loss, fear of abandonment, uh, the risk, eh? the risk of loss. So you will do anything eh, like crossing your own boundaries to avoid the risk of loss. Eh? Because then you're uh, one uh, layer uh, down. You're through the surface, eh? so like very superficial is like, oh, she's saying something, and I'm doing this, and that's very superficial. But you go um, to a deeper layer, it's like, where are you afraid of? And then, um, for somebody eh, has to decide uh, him or herself whether he or she wants to change this. And if you change things, then many things can happen. Eh? Because um, if you please people or accommodate people because uh, you want to af- uh, avoid the fear of, of the risk of loss, eh, then when you 
uh, set that boundary and don't accommodate or don't please um, uh, the other person anymore, this fear will come up. Mm. Yeah, because you don't have a defense mechanism to cope uh, with this fear. So this fear will come up. And then the um, challenge is to stay with this feeling of fear and to endure it. That's very difficult. Eh? It's not avoiding, but feeling it and to, um, to really connect to it. Because this is the reason why you always have these people eh, in this example. And um, Ryan said, eh, how do you cope with those people around you? The same thing happens because those people... They won't have, uh, so if, if you, if you start this process of changing, then uh, it doesn't mean that the people around you change in the same pace. Usually it means that the people around you don't change. They expect the same behavior mm -hmm. from you. So you will get a negative response probably. And also then it means that fear will come up. Right? The fear of abandonment, fear of loss. And that's the same thing, eh? like enduring it, doing this, eh? so um, uh, more healthy um, behavior eh? for yourself, this means uh, building your self-love, eh? doing what is good for you, but not necessarily good for the other person. And uh, finally, um, if you are uh, ready, take this risk of loss. Uh, you can change. Sometimes it means that you do lose people in this process. Yeah, so this, this is a very personal process. Eh? I mean, nobody can decide for you whether you are willing to um, yeah, give up eh? uh, people in your life. But uh, they become more uh, conscious about what it costs eh, when you go um, um, and stay yeah, with the same behavior. So if you continue pleasing, continue accommodating, well, you you um, more and more feel eh, what it costs you because you're losing yourself eh, by doing that. And if you change eh, your behavior, yeah, you're gaining something, but it's always a personal um but decide for yourself whether it's worth it. Mm, like a juggling act or, no, no, like a... Like what is uh, of more value, like uh, keeping those people in your life, but uh, still adjusting and accommodating, losing yourself or changing your behavior, but maybe without those people in your life. Mm. Given, you know, the intense process that adoptees, you know, must be going through to really reflect and tap into those feelings and probably the courage it takes too to, to, to do that. Yes. One of our questions is around the impact that that has on you as a coach. And I suppose how you sit with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, how you sit with that and perhaps how you look after yourself while doing this work. Yeah. So 
uh, if I look at my work as an adoptee coach, that this means that I am helping and guiding uh, other adoptees. But it means that this process, I mean, I've, I've been going through this process myself for some years. Eh? That's the, the thing about my work. Eh? That I'm doing this with and for other adoptees, but it, it's a big part of my own uh, experience. Eh? And it has to do with emotion regulation, uh, self-reflection, consciousness eh, about my own triggers. Because of course, eh, I feel eh, when when um, um, I have coaching sessions eh, with adoptees. I mean, I feel things too, eh, because of the story of, of somebody else and the experience. Eh? And, and sometimes I feel like, oh, I would really like to eh, get closer to you, eh, like almost like being a mother eh, to console you. But I'm aware of this movement, and I don't. Yeah, so it's really for me to like stay yeah, where I am. And also when I hear stories that are very tragic, very painful, very shocking yeah, as well sometimes, that I don't leave. Yeah, that I always stay there because if I stay, yeah, if I can stay there, um, I can give this well safe um, atmosphere to my um, coaches and also to distinguish and that's also like feeling because it's a feeling that I can feel oh this is your story this is your experience and this is not mine hmm. I don't have to take it with me so I don't take it with me uh, well I work at home but I don't take it with me after the session it's their story not mine their experience not mine it does. It means that it doesn't affect me that much. So in in your work, you're making um, a conscious effort, like while you're working, to also stay connected to your own body and your own uh, yeah. feelings. Yes, and staying in your seat, staying where you are. Seat. Yes. Yeah, and that's where it starts, eh? Because if I can't then the coaching session will be about me. Mm. Very, um, I mean, if I'm affected to, to such an extent that I can't be there anymore for the, for the coaching, then the, the coaching is about me. And I will respond to it, um, from my own experience. Stay in my own seat means that I can see the adapter for uh, uh, what and, and who uh, she or he is and his and her experience. So finally, Susan, um, if people want to get in touch with you or want to find out more about AFC Netherlands, you know, how can mm -hmm. they do that? I work eh, with other adoptees here in the Netherlands. So we have uh, a website called afcnederland.nl. Uh, I'm not so active on social media, but uh, well, I will be there. Uh, well, it will take another few months, but uh, you, they can all, always uh, contact me eh, via this website. 
Okay. Yeah, and if you live in the Netherlands, please uh, be welcome at our activities. So we do group activities, mm-hmm. talking uh, groups, constellation days or weekends, uh, sometimes webinars as well. Look at our website. Amazing. And and this is also for f- for folks who want a coach but also want to train as a coach. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So we do one on one coaching. Um, group work but if you want to become an adoptee coach we recommend you to do a personal development program first because uh, what I uh, told before eh, the self-reflection and emotion regulation is very important eh, with this work so we learn you to look at yourself instead of looking at well the other person and then uh, the follow-up is the first year of the adoptee coach training. And we also have a second year and a third year. Okay. So, Ryan, do we have time for our for a random question segment? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, one, what is your favorite thing to do to unwind? Uh, I watch K-drama. Oh, K-drama, no more trial. I really like K-drama. Uh, and I listen, I mean, all day, usually I listen to uh, uh, K- K-pop oh. uh, on Spotify. So when I work and when I'm in my house, I just listen to it. Surprisingly, it doesn't cost me any energy to, to listen to Korean music. I was going to ask if, if the Spotify playlist, is this one that you've created yourself or is it yeah. a pre-existing one? Oh, you've created I yourself. Created myself, oh. yeah. So I really like oh, uh, Korean hip hop. <gasps> would you consider sharing yeah. it? Yeah, I can. Oh my that God. would be fun. Recording. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Number two is what is your favorite comfort food? Kimchi tige. That's uh, kimchi stew. Yeah. I can uh, make it myself now. Uh, and well, even though I say it myself, I think it's, I mean, perfection doesn't exist, but it's nearly perfect. (laughs) 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 And when I was in Korea, I mean, I didn't taste that, well, that tasty kimchi chige. Oh my gosh. We, we need to know your secrets later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I will, I will, uh. Send you the, the recipe. <laughs> oh, we're going to get a recipe and a K-hip-hop playlist. playlist. Oh, my God. Um, okay, I hope this is a quick question, but what's something that people might be surprised to know about you? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, that I, uh, when I was in Korea for the last time, so I've been back two and a half weeks now, that I did these beauty treatments in Korea. So uh, um, laser treatments for pigmentation, and also ultrasound to activate the collagen in my uh, face. Ooh, skin. Would you recommend that one? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people will be very surprised. Yeah. Okay, I think we have two more questions. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, I'm going to ask this one because I don't ask the next one. <laughs> Question, um, what is a book or film you recently read or watched and loved? Well, I'm very interested in early trauma. 
So um, if listeners want to know more about that, it's not uh, specifically about adoption, but uh, it's a book called Early uh, Trauma. And it's written by uh, Franz Rupert with a Z. Okay. Great. That's some light reading. (laughs) 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 Okay. And the last one, and this is truly random, but um, so I know that before you met your current partner, you were dating for a while in the Netherlands. And so I was wondering if you have any good dating tips. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's something that you have to experience yourself. Uh, what is the best way for you? I had many strategies, like um, meeting as soon as possible from first developing a kind of connection uh, uh, via a meal and then thinking or feeling like, oh, do I really want to uh, get to know this person more and mm-hmm. meeting physically? Yeah. And... Um, and I think the most important one is open your heart. Uh, because if you close it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the uh, risk of getting hurt. Right? So enduring this fear of the risk of getting hurt. I think that's the most important one. Because if you don't, well, you don't have to start dating either. I just want to, um, Hannah, that smirk on your face. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of love that we circled back to that because I feel like maybe that's, that's one of the main takeaways from our conversation today. Yeah. Open your heart. Yes, and to endure that fear of loss, that risk of getting hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Thank yeah. you so much, Susan. I'm. I really, I really hope this will be like helpful and practical and thought provoking for listeners. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Absolutely. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please recommend us to your friends and consider leaving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.